Hello, everyone. My name is Lee, and you are listening to an episode of Iroquois History and Legends. Now, Andrew and Caleb do a fantastic job of sifting through sparse, incomplete, and biased sources in an attempt to reconstruct the history and culture of the Haudenosaunee. On my show, The Viking Age Podcast, we take a similar approach to a very different people, the medieval Scandinavians, who today we know as the Vikings. Now, of course, the Vikings are famous as bloodthirsty raiders. And they are also known as explorers who arrived in North America over 500 years before Champlain or Cartier. But they also believed in shape-shifting. They had complex political systems. And they even held sacrificial feasts for elves. In our show, we try to tell the full story of these fascinating people. We talk about raiding, trading, and exploration. But we also explore the economy, culture, and religion of Scandinavia during the Viking Age to try to explain why the Vikings did what they did. So, when you're done with this episode, why don't you consider giving the Viking Age podcast a try? You can search for us on any podcast app, and you can find us online at vikingagepodcast.com. But for now, let me turn you back over to Andrew and Caleb. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to Iroquois History and Legends. I'm Andrew. And I'm Caleb and welcome to part four on a several part series we're doing on the French and Indian War. We're titling this one uh, Fort William Henry. So if you want to know what's going on, we would highly recommend that you jump back a few episodes and visit our first episode on the French and Indian War series. Previously, Caleb, we talked about Fort Bull. And this was a British, if you want to call it a fort, sure, it's a fort. But it was in this location known as the Oneida Carry, which was between Wood Creek and the Mohawk River. And it allowed access to either the Hudson River Valley or the St. Lawrence and Great Lakes system, depending on which way you went. So it was a very central and strategic location. That's right. And if you recall, the French and their Indian allies did a sneak attack on the fort, capturing it, completely massacring every single English soldier that was there. The place caught on fire and they blew up like 46,000 pounds of gunpowder or something like that. The consequence of this is the British have established this other beachhead at Oswego, which is on Lake Ontario where the Oswego River exits. Now, there is no link between that fort all the way over on Lake Ontario and Albany. If you also remember, Governor William Shirley had sent all the troops there and they were dealing with huge supply crises and then this happens again. So this is really hampering their efforts to take a strike at Fort Frontenac or Fort Niagara. We also mentioned last time that there was the Battle of Lake George. Lake George and Lake Champlain are these two very long, twisty, windy lakes that give access 
from New York up into Canada. The British were trying to go up into Lake Champlain and seize the forts there, but they're stopped, and the French also were trying to come down and siege at Fort Edward, and they were stopped. So now they're kind of at this stalemate, but there's still a massive French army camped up at Lake Champlain. The main losers have been the Mohawk. The British have been losing horribly, but the Mohawk have been losing a huge number of the population of their warriors, both French-Canadian Mohawks and Mohawk River Valley British Allied Mohawks. Also remember, everything is complicated because all this is happening at once. Braddock's defeat was just a couple months before this, and Shirley is camping at Oswego, and Johnson's attacking Lake Champlain. It's all going on simultaneously. While Shirley's still camped at Oswego, he writes to William Johnson, who we remember, these guys are not getting along at all. Right, Caleb? Right, because uh, William Johnson, if you recall, he's the Indian commissioner, so he feels like he has a separate royal charter, and he's not beholden to uh, the governor or the general. He's completely autonomous. And Shirley is really mad at Johnson because... Johnson only took a bullet to one knee, so he's still got a good knee, and he wants to know why they are advancing further to retake Fort Crown Point. Yeah, and like you said, he took a bullet to the knee. It wasn't healing. I mean, I, I don't understand. You'd think that a musket ball to the knee would heal right up after several weeks, but this injury was really nagging and lingering around, and it was uh, healing particularly slow. And this was really hindering Johnson in his ability to run a campaign. And so when he hears from Shirley that he needs to push and capture Ticonderoga, Johnson replies, um, I don't have enough wagons, and my troops are ill-clothed, ill-fed, discontented, insubordinate, and sickly. And he didn't mention his leg, but I'm sure that that played into it too. And he decided that Nope, we're going to move our men south, and we're going to build a fort at the south end of Lake George, and I will name it Fort William Henry, after King George II's son and grandson. Back hundreds of miles to the west, Shirley is at Oswego with grand plans. He wants to do his attack on Fort Niagara at the other end of Lake Ontario, some 200 miles away. The thing is, the French knew what he was up to. Caleb, do you remember a few episodes back when we talked about how Braddock was defeated and his logbook fell into French hands? And you mentioned that the French got all the British plans? Yep. Well, they know what Shirley's up to, and they know that Shirley is planning on attacking Fort Niagara. Did none of these English officers have the ability to uh, play by ear and ad-lib? It's like, if you know they have your logbook, I feel like I would instantly change my top-secret plans at that point. Well, maybe they don't actually know if he has the logbook or not. It's going to become pretty clear when every place they go, there's uh, 4,000 soldiers waiting for them along the way, though. Not only do they have the forces waiting at Niagara... But also, you remember our old favorite fort, Fort Frontenac, which is on the north side of Lake Ontario near the St. Lawrence River? The French stationed a bunch of people there, and Fort Frontenac is only about 60 miles from Oswego. And they're just absolutely hoping that Shirley actually sets out west, because as soon as he leaves, they're going to send all the forces down from Fort Frontenac to attack Fort Oswego, thereby leaving Shirley completely trapped in western New York. Kind of, fortunately for Shirley, I guess. He decides to listen to some advice from his officers. He actually finds out through reconnaissance from the Iroquois giving him good intelligence, saying that, hey, there's a large body of soldiers at Frontenac, and hey, there's a large body of soldiers at Niagara. But he wants to go regardless. And his men hold a council, and they just plainly to his face tell him that he's absolutely mad. This whole enterprise is totally impractical. What we should be doing is strengthening this fort at Oswego because they're going to attack us. 
and we should build good vessels. And Shirley's still trying to convince them to go. And he says, we've got all these great vessels here. We've got these bateaux. Now, Caleb, have you ever been out on Lake Ontario before? Because I have. I was actually just working on Lake Ontario two days ago. Is it a nice, calm, tranquil lake? Uh, about once every 15 days it is. Some days, if you didn't know that you were on the Great Lakes, you would think that you were at the east coast or the west coast and you were looking at the ocean the waves can be 10 feet high sometimes yeah. and just come crashing in and these bateaux are really flat bottom boats with very low siding yeah, they're he basically river ferries is what they are they're just moved for uh, used for moving up and down rivers calm rivers at that the men are just like you cannot go out on this lake and transport these men and fortunately for shirley he listened then when he finds out he's commander-in-chief, he decides that it would be best if he heads back to Albany and tells the people to start strengthening Fort Oswego and get it ready. And when he gets back, we're going to launch a real expedition. So now we're looking at the end of October, 1755. He's left several hundred men in Oswego. He's back at Albany, and he's dreaming up grand plans on how to conquer all of North America. And then a letter arrives from President Trump saying, You're fired. Andrew, I am like the master of bad accents, and you took the cake with that one. The letter actually came from King George, and do you know what it said, Caleb? I'm guessing it said you're fired. He's fired. The king at this point is getting pretty fed up with these letters making it across the pond to him every couple of months, saying, We lost a fort. Please send more food. He sends more food. All the food got captured. Please send more. He sends more food and men. We lost the food and men. Please send more. So the, he gets, the king gets it in his head that he's going to send somebody that's a little more qualified and somebody that he can trust to do the crown's best interest. And that man was the Earl of Loudoun. Now, Earl, that's a pretty noble title, isn't it, Caleb? I don't know. This is America, so we don't really... Uh... Well, an Earl is just a step below a prince. Meanwhile, back at Fort Oswego... Winter has arrived, and life for the common soldier at Oswego is just like a lovely paradise vacation, because they have indoor heated pools, and tennis courts, and basketball every Thursday night. It was nothing like that. It was an absolute living hell. We should probably explain what lake effect snow is, too, for those that don't live in west, western New York, central New York. And Oswego is the capital of lake effect snow, so why don't you explain it? Uh, well, if you're looking at the Great Lakes, the predominant wind always comes from the west. So basically anything east of there get this wonderful thing we call lake effect snow. And uh, the funny thing is, is you can be four or five miles away from the lake and it can be sunny out, but you'll cross this band of moisture that's gathering coming across the lakes and it will just snow and snow and snow for days. Oswego will sometimes get 10 feet of snow when one of these bands sticks around. Oswego is perfectly situated so that it's on the corner where New York kind of goes up at a 90 degree angle. And so, like Caleb said, if you get a west wind, the warm moisture from the lake blows over and collides with the cold air and it snows. If you get a north wind that comes down from Canada, Oswego is right there from the north also and it comes down and snows. Oswego is a very snowy place and no place to be in a wooden fort in the middle of winter. The man in charge at Fort Oswego is a man named Captain John Vickers. He writes back saying that because of the lack of food, he's had to hold several councils of war to try and decide whether it would be better to just abandon the whole place because of the sheer starvation that they're facing. That's right, Andrew. He's quoted saying, 
Had the poor fellows lived, they must have eaten one another. So he was saying it was actually good that half of them died because then they had a little more food. Absolutely horrible. Some of these men are lodged in the barracks, but there's not even enough beds to go around. So it's winter, it's snowing, it's cold, and they pretty much have to lie down on the bare ground inside these forts. Our old friends scurvy and dysentery show up and wreak frightful havoc because it's very unsanitary. I'm sure that there's fleas and lice everywhere. If you ever decide to go back in time to visit a place, do not visit Fort Oswego during this winter. You might bring something back with you. In January, the captain got more great news when he was informed by the Iroquois that the French were going to attack them. <laughs> well, that was nice of the Iroquois to let him know that. Fort Oswego at this time is kind of more of a, a complex. The English have actually built three forts here. But again, these forts are not much better than the forts you and I used to build out in the back hedgerows, Caleb. Hey, I was proud of those forts. Yeah, they were very good. And they could probably hold off the French just as well with our <laughs> barbed wire and uh, interwoven dead branches in the hedgerow. The main fort was called... Oswego Fort. Yeah, well, the main fort was called Oswego. <laughs> and it was on the east side of the Oswego River. It had uh, several issues. One, there was no cannon that was stationed on the side most exposed to attack. They did mount two pieces on the large trading house in the center, but when they did some test firing of the cannon, it shook stones off the wall, and they were afraid that it was actually going to collapse the whole building, so they had to take it off. Yeah, they had a second fort not far away that was called Fort Ontario, and that was on the west side of the Oswego River. And it was a much less impressive structure. Uh, it was really more of a, an outhouse or a blockhouse than the main fort. Just something to kind of support the fort. You think that's bad, Caleb? Tell him about the third one. The third one was called New Oswego. It, it had a kind of a comical nickname. All of the common soldiers referred to it as Fort Rascal. It was so deplorable, and it was never even finished. They didn't even put loopholes in the stockade so they could fire out of it. So the only way that they could actually return fire while inside the fort was they had to open up the front gate and place a cannon there to fire out, which sounds to me like a really bad idea. Meanwhile, back in New York, the Earl of Loudoun has arrived. The new general sails up the Hudson River, and he's already in a bad mood. On reaching Albany, he announces that he's going to abandon any attempts against Niagara and Frontenac because he realizes Shirley's idea is absolutely ludicrous, and he resolves to turn his whole force against Ticonderoga. But then he's met with an obstacle, and it's not the French, but this issue perplexes him and totally enrages him. That's right. Uh, when he gets there, he tries to incorporate the colonial militia into his army, and all the militia officers would be placed at the rank of captain. That includes the colonels, the governors, and all these other higher-ranking colonial officers. So right away, he's going to come in and he's going to give all of the, the militia officers a demotion. And then on top of that, tell them that they have to take orders from him now. And we're already starting to see at this point that a lot of the, the colonists, the Americans, they like to do things their own way. And they don't like big league earls coming over and telling them what they have to do. Also, a lot of these militias have been kind of privately funded and uh, gotten together by certain people that want to get a regiment together. They would train them and drill them themselves and fund the, mo the money for their uniforms. And they all kind of had this pride thing, almost like what we have today with the Marines and uh, the Navy SEALs and the Green Berets. you got all these different branches within the military, 
but they all look at themselves with a little bit of pride, ways that distinguish themselves from everybody else. And now all of a sudden, can you imagine going into a Marine company and telling them, you guys are all in the Army now? Oh, that would not go over well. And that's exactly what happens with the militia here. But the British kind of view these guys as Thursday night bowling league. It's just a group of guys. (laughs) That's what I think of. It's a group of guys going together, and they got their one guy who's the leader of the bowling team that coordinates everything. (laughs) And he's an earl. You guys got to listen to me. And they're just like, eh, I I didn't vote for him. He's like, we don't vote. This is not a democracy. (laughs) While this is all happening, the militia actually threatened to mass resign. Because they don't want a demotion, and they don't want the British discipline being instructed on them who are just here to defend their homes. And so when he realizes that this whole army is going to just take their ball and go home, he decides to begrudgingly push back a little bit and let them keep their stupid Thursday night bowling leagues. Meanwhile, the French are super busy. They decide to run the old bait and switch. One of the commanders, a man named Montclam, has made a big show of deploying all of his men and resources to Lake Champlain. And he's making it look like he's gearing up for a huge offensive. And what this does is it causes the British to pull all their forces up to Lake George, uh, as well as all of their supplies, drawing everything that could be going to us, we go to support them after their horrible winter uh, everybody's saying, oh, never mind, don't send those supplies to us. We go, we're going to need them over at Lake George. While the British are all distracted, Monclam leaves Ticonderoga on July 16th, 1756, and with lightning speed, he heads north and reaches Montreal just three days later. That is, that's really hauling it up that lake. Two days later, he's at Fort Frontenac, which, again, is pretty far out there. And then he's already got people waiting there for him. He has French troops gathered, along with a large company of Indians, about 250 in all. A large number of them are Catholic Mohawk, but others come from all over around New France. Altogether, he's got a force of about 3,000 men. On August 9th, they start to march overland towards Oswego. Montclam and his other forces move in another direction on Bateau, hugging the edge of the lake, and they land about two miles east of Fort Ontario on August 10th. They're really stealthy in their movement, and it's totally successful. The British did not even see them until a small patrol boat saw them the next morning. The British try and send a ship out to try and distract the French before they can fully land, but the French fired back. They had some field artillery, and not just any field artillery. It was a gift from a particular gentleman named Edward Braddock. If you remember, many of his cannons that he spent all that time to get over the Appalachian Mountains were captured after he was totally routed by the Indian force. The French have them now, and they're going to use them in this siege. Montclam gets to work, and he's got his very skilled engineer here, and he's going to start doing surveillance on the British defenses to see how to best conduct a siege. And so they go out on a little scouting party, and he's accompanied by other officers and a party of Mohawk Indians. One of the Mohawk Indians, I guess, gets a little confused and is not paying attention. The Indian gets trigger-happy and mistakes the engineer for a British soldier and shoots him dead. Then Montclam had to find a new engineer. On the night between August 11th and 12th, the French opened the siege trenches and began working towards Fort Ontario. And they did a great job holding them off. Really, Andrew? Nope, not at all. The defenders exchanged some cannon fire with the French colonists and Indians until late on August 13th, at which point, under orders, 
they decide it would be best to abandon the fort before the French even get the siege trenches anywhere near close enough. Immediately, Montclam occupies the fort and begins constructing batteries on the western edge where they could reach Fort Oswego. They're moving pretty quick, and the French have nine cannons in place within a couple days. And when these open fire, they expose, remember on Fort Oswego, that big building in the middle that was super shaky and they couldn't even put a cannon on because it was going to crumble? Well, they start firing at that thing, and it just starts crumbling to pieces. The colonel that's in charge of this whole area, a man named Mercer, was struck and killed by a French cannonball shell. Hey, Andrew, do you know how they knew it was a cannonball that killed him? How? By the size of the hole. So now the lieutenant colonel, a man named John Littlehiles, he gets promoted and takes over for Mercer. After a very quick war council, they decide to get out the white laundry and raise it up the flagpole and surrender. The same week, back in the West, the Earl of Loudoun gives permission to send a relief force to help reinforce Fort Oswego. That's great, right, Caleb? That's great, and they actually uh, were moving quite quickly. Uh, they were already marching there when Oswego pens the surrender. And uh, they're not even given the honors of war, are they, Andrew? No. Because back then, you were kind of expected to put up a little bit of a fight if you were going to be granted honors of war to show that you had courage and such like that. But if you raised the flag too early and then said, hey, can I have honors of war? Uh, your enemy most likely would say, no, you coward. I'm not giving you honors of war. We're taking everything and you're going to be a prisoner. And uh, so literally, right as he signs the fort away and he gets nothing out of it, a messenger comes to the fort. Hold off, hold off. Don't sign anything. There's relief on the way. Oh, well, um, I just surrendered. And he was a man of his word. He could have uh, crawfished and said, you know, ripped the paper up. But... Yeah, but they wouldn't have lasted 24 hours with that shacky accommodation anyway. Regardless, the forces make it to the Oneida Carry when they receive messages that Oswego has fallen, and they turn around and go home. Like Caleb said, though, they're denied the honors of war, which means when Washington surrendered Fort Necessity... He was allowed to leave with all his men. None of these British prisoners are going home anytime soon. They're all going to be POWs and taken back to Canada. They're probably saying anywhere's better than Oswego. <laughs> Maybe. Have you seen Canada in the winter versus <laughs> Oswego? This is a huge blow to the British. They lose 1,700 people, including laborers, shipbuilders, women, and children. To make matters worse, since they're not given honors of war, the Indians rush into the fort and begin plundering it. And they open up bottles of rum, and they, not just the Indians, but the French soldiers alike, get drunk. And amid this confusion, some of the British people actually get tomahawked by, again, both French and Indians, wanted to make that clear. The colonel that surrenders Little Hells is seized by a group of Abenaki Indians and was badly beaten and they called him an absolute coward for surrendering so early. The French general and his force then depart for the St. Lawrence, taking everybody away. The French victory was a huge boost to them. It made a big impression on many of the Indian tribes, because they soon saw that, you know, the British are losing this conflict. And after this, members of the Six Nations decide that maybe being neutral isn't the best option. Maybe we should move to the French side. And so the Seneca and Oneida nations formally declare for the French. They're seeing a lot of these other Western tribes working with the French, and they're the ones that are coming in getting all the plunder with everything. And they're thinking to themselves, hey, we're the Iroquois. 
We're the big dogs in town. We should be the ones in there getting all this plunder. We should be the ones getting all the captives in honor. So we're going to talk more about what the Iroquois are thinking at this time in a little bit. But let's switch focus because we mentioned that back on Lake Champlain and Lake George, these two British and French armies are massing and gearing up for a big offensive. So let's see what's going on there. Okay, Andrew, let's fast forward a couple months into the following year. Saturday morning, March 19th, 1757. The English troops are all fast asleep in Fort William Henry at the south end of Lake George when at 3 a.m. an alarm is given and apparently a, a party of French Indians is seen in relatively large numbers right outside of musket range of the fort. After a few moments, a party of French soldiers are seen walking towards the sloops and all the ships that are kind of frozen in the ice just outside the fort. And they're seen with huge bundles of kindling and fuses and kegs of gunpowder. Well, what could they possibly be up to? <laughs> well, they are going to try and set all of the ships on fire. This is, a, this is a sneak attack. They're trying to get in at night and destroy all the English ships. I imagine this is so with the coming spring. They figure they'll get a jump start on the English. They'll come down there and get rid of all their ships. That way they don't have to worry about them invading them in a couple months. But the English jump into action right away, and just in the nick of time, they load up a 32-pounder cannon full of grape shot and start peppering the French as they're getting close to the ships. One of the English officers comments on how he puts them into such a confusion that they just drop all of their supplies, and the English are able to go out and just find scaling ladders, tomahawks, scalping knives, just tons of supplies everywhere. At 5 a.m., the English look down the lake and they see the French army marching right down the frozen lake in a huge number. As dawn is just starting to kind of crack through, and even though it's dark, you can see all these dark silhouettes marching down the frozen lake. And they're only about four miles from Fort William Henry. By 6 o'clock, the horde of Frenchmen split in half, and they each work their way down the hills on each side of the lake to surround the fort. When they get close, one Englishman is quoted saying, the major saluted them with some grapes from a 32-pounder, which made them hoop and yelp. I imagine they had pretty good effect and the French got a little too close. Things are moving quickly now. It's 7 a.m. and they begin to open fire with their small arms. They don't have any cannons with them, uh, but they have their muskets and they're starting to pepper the fort. It really doesn't have much of an effect though because Fort William Henry is a, a square fort, but it has four bastions on each corner, and the walls are 30 feet thick. They basically build a box of timbers, and then they just fill it with dirt, 30 feet thick. So it's really not doing much. But the English have a bigger problem, and that's not the muskets. That's that they look out, and they see the French have approximately 300 siege ladders. Oh, like the Battle of the Hornburg at Helm's Deep. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm picturing. 300 ladders coming up all at the same time in your fort, you're going to have a bad day. So at this point, it becomes clear this isn't just a sneak attack to destroy our boats. This is an all-out invasion, and they are going to come and take the fort. This isn't going to be a siege. We've got to fight off however many people there is out there in hand-to-hand -hand combat. All of a sudden, everything goes quiet. And everybody kind of settles down for the night. The, you can see the French are starting to make camp at random places in the woods. And so the English are going to start settling down for night too. When all of a sudden, at 2 a.m., 
the English are awoken by a 200-foot pillar of fire. Wait, what? Where does a 200-foot pillar of fire come from? Well, you see, this time the French succeeded in uh, burning the sloop and the ships, and they were able to sneak men in with the gunpowder and explode it. So everybody's woken to a huge crash and just a huge fireball coming from a quarter mile from the fort because this fort is built right on the lake. And in doing so, this makes it so you can see almost like it's day outside for hundreds of yards. Well, at least the French wouldn't be stupid enough to try and raid the fort then. So just then, Andrew, the French think it would be a brilliant idea to invade the fort. Before this, the English were blind. But now, due to this huge fireball, the English can see that the French are preparing to charge with the 300 ladders and they can see exactly where they're planning, what bastions they're planning on attacking first. So the English are able to get all their cannons and all their men very quickly into place and they're able to completely push back the French almost immediately. At the end of this battle, they do a count to find out who's dead and they find out that the they have not lost a single man. Well, wow, things are really turning around for the British. And in fact, they only had five wounded, and it said that they were uh, very minor wounds, just some flesh wounds. Wow, sounds like Fort William Henry is going to be around for the ages. At 6 a.m. the following morning, the English and the French officers met out on the field. We sadly do not know what they said to one another, but once the English officer comes back into the fort, the Major went around the bastions telling the men the French will give no quarter. Well, that's pretty harsh. The English soldiers were not the least bit scared at all. In fact, they were all excited and ready for a fight. I imagine they were getting bored from sitting there all winter and so that they were, they were hoping something could happen that could turn the tides of this. In fact, Andrew, a lot of the men that were sick and in the hospital were so excited that they were under attack that they all start limping out, grabbing their muskets. Hey, can we fight too? Was it, or were they just pretending to be sick so they didn't have to be on garrison oh, duty? Oh, that could be too. But one way or another, they did come out and they wanted to fight in this battle. So later that day, the English officers send out two ranger regiments, and they drive back the French fairly easily. The French officers lick their wounds a couple miles from the fort, uh, but they start to think better of it. Because, uh, like we said, the lake is frozen over. In the Adirondacks in March, it's still below zero every night and highs in the teens and 20s. Uh, so almost half of his men actually have frostbite at this time. And the other half are pretty well starved. So they decide they're going to retreat back up to Lake Champlain. And if you remember, Mohawks and Abenakis and the other natives, they don't do sieges. They think it's stupid and a waste of time and you throw away your lives. So just like that, Fort William Henry is saved. And wow. Yeah. Well, at least for a couple months anyway. Oh, what happens in a couple months? In addition to the large sloop that they destroyed, they also destroyed about 300 small bateaux. And these boats were mainly going to be used by the British to travel up Lake George and try and attack Fort Ticonderoga. At this time, we'd like to introduce you to a man named Lieutenant Colonel Monroe. He's a brilliant, well-distinguished military officer with zero battlefield experience, and he takes over. The months are waning on, and he's trying to figure out where are the French? What are they doing? At this point, the English Mohawk are being very standoffish, and he's not getting any good intelligence from them. So he gets an idea that he's going to send out a reconnaissance force. And his plan was to gather all the available boats that we have left and pack them full. Let's get like... 
350 men, and let's send them up the north of Lake George into this area that we really don't know anything about, and let's see where the enemy's at so that we can have a better idea of what to do for the campaign season. To do this great and noble reconnaissance mission, Caleb, the colonel chooses a man named John Parker and his New Jersey Blues Regiment to lead the flotilla of men. And they are going to head to a place called Sabbath Day Point. This is about 20 miles or 32 kilometers north of Fort William Henry on the west side of Lake George. So they're, they're going on a nice little boat trip in the Adirondacks. That's, that sounds like fun. On July 20th, as this advance party of three boats is heading out, the French scouts immediately see it. Hey, there's some boats on the lake. And maybe we should get some people down and meet them. So a force of about 450 French and Indian men depart Fort Ticonderoga to intercept them. The French totally ambush Parker's three lead boats. The Indians take the men in the three head boats captive. Rather than just shutting up and not saying anything, they're questioned. And what do you think they tell them, Caleb? Let me guess. They're on a diplomatic mission from Alderaan. They probably said that. But they also said that... There's a whole bunch more boats with about 300 people on the way. And they're like, hmm, maybe we should stick around. So the French set up an ambush, and they're hiding just in the woods at the edge of the lake. Early in the morning on July 23rd, Parker's main force approached Sabbath Day Point, totally unaware that his three boats have been captured and that the French and Indians know his plan. As Parker's men approach the shore, they see the three boats that they sent out docked on the edge. So they think, hey, nothing's wrong. In addition, they have decoys set up in the boats, and then they spring the trap. They start hollering from the decoys to come on over. And once they're in range, the Indians and the French light a volley of musket fire into them while they're still in the boats. At the same time, a sneak attack of Indians in canoes come around the point. This is like a naval military maneuver. So they're coming around the peninsula on the point, and these canoes have surrounded Parker's men. And then it just turns into like a horror film. The Indians jump out of the water from their canoes, and they're swimming down under the water, Caleb. And so they're just like, I can just see them sitting there in their boats, shaking with their muskets. And then you see one canoe flip over. And then you see another canoe flip over. And these Indians are just pulling these people down and drowning them. And they have their knives in it or stabbing them. They sink, capsize, or capture all but two of Parker's boats. And then they just, you know, they're getting everything speared, stabbed, drowned. It was a pretty one-sided event. The overwhelmed soldiers didn't even get a shot off. In the end, only about 100 of Parker's men, including Parker himself, fortunately, escaped the onslaught. So Parker sits out with 350 men and 160 are drowned or killed, 100 make it back, and the remainder are taken prisoner. The French reportedly had one person slightly wounded. Another glorious loss for England. Meanwhile, up in Fort Ticonderoga, our old friend, the Marquis de Montcalm, the same French officer that was responsible for the fall of Oswego, has decided to end this stalemate between the English and the French, and he's going to move against Fort William Henry. At this point, he has swelled his ranks to almost 7,000 men. 7,000? Yeah, about 3,000 regulars, 3,000 Canadian militia, and then almost 1,000 Native American warriors. To give you an idea, when Braddock set out, his forces were like 2,200. This is 7,000. 
Things are progressing pretty quickly. I can see that. Marquis de Montcalm, he had gained this thousand-person Indian army. Yeah, where did they come from? Well, he had promised them all of the great plunder that there would be in defeating the English. And they had all heard about what happened at Braddock's defeat. So they all got it in their heads. This is going to be easy. We can just go down. They'll all run away. We'll capture them and we'll just get tons of cool stuff. These people are coming from literally all over northern North America. We're talking about Algonquins and Iroquois and even people as far west as Illinois and Wisconsin. So I think that Montclaw even had some Winnebagos on this camping trip too. Those Winnebagos. Never go camping without them. So down at Fort William Henry on August 2nd, 1757, Major General Daniel Webb, he's like the head guy in charge right now, he learns of this concentrated French force that's preparing to move against Fort William Henry. Webb was actually at Fort William Henry at the time, so he did the natural thing, right, Andrew? Uh, Whenever any general learns that that fort is about to be uh, marched upon with superior forces, and he hightailed it out of there and went down to Fort Edward, a little safer distance away. Oh, I'm sure it was to coordinate and get reinforcements, right? I'm sure it was. Uh, And he leaves... Lieutenant Colonel George Monroe at the scenes at Fort William Henry with about 2,200 soldiers. Fort William Henry, like we said, it was a square with five bastions. You could only hold about 500 people, and that was even kind of pushing it in the confines of these walls that we mentioned. So when Monroe learns that Montcalm is preparing to attack his fort with over 7,000 men, he quickly writes a letter and sends it down to General Webb at Fort Edward. Webb has a good number of reinforcements able and willing at his side, but he refuses Monroe's request and sends back a letter advising Monroe, uh, get the best terms possible in a surrender. And that's how he leaves off his letter. Why? Who knows? But why not just have all the men leave now if you're going to tell them to surrender anyway. If you're not going to send the reinforcements, why not have them blow the fort up and fall back? So Montcalm's troops start funneling in around the fort in early August. Montcalm, in the meantime, uh, he orders siege operations to begin and the French make trenches on the northwest of the fort and their goal is to blow open the fort's northwest bastion. You said it's like 30 feet thick. You're going to need some serious gunpowder to try and get that wall down. Well, they've got some serious gunpowder. On August 5th, the French guns begin firing. When they start, they start shooting from about 2,000 yards away. That's 1,800 meters. And the Indians, it it says that they start getting really excited. These 1,000 Indians that are thinking they're going to get all this stuff, knowing that the spoils and the, the prisoners are close at hand. After a day of cannon fire, Montcalm thought it would be a good time to ask for Monroe's surrender. But as we've learned before, the honorable thing to do, it's like this dance, this etiquette. You siege the fort, and the British have a chance to surrender. The British know that they're going to lose, but the honorable thing to do is to refuse surrender. And that's exactly what Monroe does. So Montcalm, he wasn't too surprised when Monroe, the tough old Scotsman, declines his request for a surrender. So the next day, the French continue zigzagging trenches, and they were actually able to open up a second battery. This one, 900 feet closer, or about 270 meters. 
And so now they're able to start creating this crossfire, firing down into the fort. The walls begin to splinter like toothpicks. Once again, Montcalm asks for his surrender, and once again, Monroe declines. Now at this point, uh, Monroe has kind of done the polite thing, and he refused to surrender off the bat. He could now surrender in, uh, in good faith and most likely get all of the honors of war. But he's refusing again. So Montcalm, he goes back and he's actually starting to run into a little problem. You see, he's been firing for two days nonstop at this fort and he's worried that he's going to run out of gunpowder soon and he's going to run out of food soon. And you would wonder how that could be, but remember, he's got 7,000 people besieging this place. You need a lot of supplies. And he was planning on bombarding this place for two days and he thought for sure Monroe would surrender by then. So he's actually starting to worry a little bit. Luck is on the Frenchman's side. That's right, Andrew, because on August 7th, they capture a, a message from General Webb because between all this, you're trying to get secret messages and runners sneaking through the woods back and forth to get communications to the other forts. So he captures a messenger bringing a message to Monroe from General Webb. And uh, I'm sure that General Webb in this, in this letter is going to say, don't worry, we're on our way with 7,000 reinforcements. We'll be there in a day. But it was the same thing as before. He was unwilling slash unable to bring any reinforcements. And he told Monroe again, try and get good terms in the surrender. Malcolm looks at the note and says to the messenger, you can go ahead and deliver that. That'd be great. <laughs> so very quickly, he sends it up with a white flag to Monroe and says, hey, hey, uh, we accidentally got this in our mailbox. I think this is addressed to you, isn't it? That this, uh, this order to surrender? Oh, here you go. Oh, by the way, are you going to surrender? Monroe refuses, even though he's got an order from the general. And he knows that no reinforcements are coming. He still refuses to surrender. What's this guy's problem? He's a tough Scotsman. Monroe orders their smaller cannons to open fire at this point because the, the French cannons are getting so close at this point that they can finally start reaching out to touch them but it, they're not very effective they're in trenches so it's really hard to have cannonballs effectively shoot down at them and the french just get closer and closer by the third day almost all the english cannons were either blown off their mounts or literally blown open from overheating so on august 7th after bombarding the fort with everything they had by the end of the day, Fort William Henry's walls had been breached, and almost all the English guns were useless. And at that point, they had taken a lot of casualties, and still, Monroe decides to try and hold off one more day. But when the next day comes and the light comes up, Monroe looks out and he sees that their cannons are only 250 yards away from Fort William Henry. So Monroe raises the white flag, and begins to open up negotiations for a surrender. Fortunately, the English and French officers are very polite to each other. War is messy, dirty business, but we try to kill each other in a civilized manner. And once a garrison has been surrendered, there's no reason that we both can't enjoy a fine dinner. Correct, Caleb? Yeah, so the French and the English officers end up dining together, and we see this all the time throughout European warfare. The common folk all get killed, and then they make peace. And so they begin to negotiate uh, what type of surrender it's going to be. And 
Monroe ends up working out pretty good deal for his English soldiers, considering they're basically could be wiped out at this point if the French wanted to. But he works out that all the English soldiers get to keep all of their personal supplies. They get to go out with the full honors of war, all of their weapons, and one ceremonial cannon that's been blown up. Yeah, one ceremonial <laughs> cannon. They probably looked for one that wasn't blown up. Well, this makes me feel good, Caleb. This just seems like a win-win for everybody. That's right. The French really didn't have to lose many men. They're going to capture the fort so they can go home heroes. The English get to keep all their guns, and they only have to march a few miles away down to Fort Edward. Uh, They had to promise that they wouldn't fight for 18 months, which honestly, that could probably be the best thing uh, if you value your life during this entire war is if, oh, sorry, I swore an oath that I can't fight for 18 months. Please let the the score be over. (laughs) So yeah, it's a win-win for everybody. There's one group of people that feel really disenfranchised. Picture yourself, Caleb. You've walked all the way from Iowa to help the French who say that they're in dire need of Indian allies, and you've been promised a good payout of plunder and possibly some captives, or maybe you'll get some kills under your belt and some scalps to take home to raise your prestige in your local community. And you've walked hundreds of miles and done everything the French people say, and they've sieged this place from their sworn enemies, the English, and then when they surrender... They sit down with them and start drinking alcohol and holding a feast together at a table while you stand outside figuring what the heck is wrong with these Europeans. Don't they know how to fight a war? So the fort officially changed hands on August 9th. The English camped outside the fort and they planned on getting an early start the next day. But uh, the French and the English, everybody was kind of uneasy. Everybody was afraid what these Indians would do. So Montcalm, he got all the leaders of the Native Americans together, and he made them swear, all the war chiefs, that they would not attack the English. And they, they all said, we will not attack them. We don't know what the 900 warriors that are with us will do, but we promise we won't do anything. What happens next becomes something of, total American folklore. And we're going to give you two different accounts. Here's what we do know. Many of the natives get into the alcohol and become intoxicated and disgruntled for traveling, like we said, a huge distance and not getting anything for it. And as this train of soldiers and civilians is marching down towards Fort Edward, they decide to lay an ambush and some of them start coming up towards the end of the column, and they start walking up to people and taking stuff off their persons. Maybe a jacket, maybe a watch, maybe something else that they're carrying, and then it turns into people start getting dragged in the woods. And then, once the English start fighting back, it just escalates more and more and more until you have a full-off battle. And the really sad thing is that this takes place at the back of the column. So this is where a lot of the sick, the wounded, the women, and the children are. When reports start getting in, they start saying that 1,500 men, women, and children were shot and scalped and bludgeoned to death. And local American newspapers just run with this. This is how it went down. The French told the Indians to attack defenseless, surrendered civilians and massacred 1,500 of them. That is not really what happened. In fact, the majority of the French officers 
uh, actually put their lives at risk and actually did everything they could to stop what was going on and then through great difficulty and effort themselves tried to get back as many people as they could that were captured. Malcolm took this as a huge issue for his personal honor because people were writing saying that he was the devil for sicking Indians on people. And so he was paying a huge price just to get a single person back. Here's more realistically what we're looking at. We're probably looking at about 70 to 180 people killed outright by Indians. And again, not all of the Indians participated in this. Do we really know who they were? No, because there were so many different nations and tribes. Probably about another 300 people end up getting taken captive and taken away. But like we said, the British newspapers just start running with this huge propaganda saying that can't trust the French. And so now French generals realize that the English tell them we are not offering any more honors of war or any other guarantees that your prisoners will be left untouched. Malcolm takes a small force of his men and actually escorts the remaining British civilians and soldiers down to Fort Edward to make sure that they're not touched any further. Another problem that arises is back at Fort William Henry, many of the Indians invade the fort and there's a lot of people that have been too weak to be moved and the French promised that they would take care of them. But these different Indian nations go in and kill all of the sick and wounded English people and scalping them. And there's not enough officers that are really willing to do more than say, no, don't do that. None of the common soldiers are going to get between a, an Indian warrior with a tomahawk and an Englishman scalp. So they kind of, even though they're kind of turning a blind eye and kind of disgusted by it, they're not really doing anything about it. This has even worse ramifications for these Native Americans and their communities because a lot of these sick people in this fort have a horrible disease called smallpox. As these people are taking these personal items and scalps and then they head home, they're bringing the smallpox disease with them. All these tribes that came from hundreds of miles are bringing this disease back and hundreds and thousands of totally innocent native people are going to die from these epidemics over the years. And some communities, again, in this wave may lose half their population. Now, Andrew, when I was reading this, um, I was pretty disgusted, honestly. You hear about the Indians scalping people. You hear about them even uh, eating people, ceremonially cooking them and eating them. And I was thinking to myself for a minute, you know, just how horrible would this be? And how horrible were people back then? How savage is that? Yeah, why can't they be more civilized like these British and French people that were having a fine meal together? Here's the thing, though, Andrew. I was just recently reading a book that was covering the French and Indian War. It was actually more on the Seven Years' War from the French point of view over in Europe. And I figured that I would share this little thing that I came across in this book. In the same year that these monstrosities happened at Fort William Henry, over in France, somebody attempts to stab King Louis XV. They uh, grab the guy and they throw him in prison, and then they shortly take him out, and they crush his feet, and they cut him open with a knife, and they pour molten wax, molten lead, and boiling oil into his wounds. That doesn't sound good. 
He was then harnessed to horses where they tried to pull his arms and legs off from his body, when at which point the horses weren't strong enough to do it. So they cut his tendons, ripped his arms and legs off, and then as his torso was still alive and moaning, burned him at the stake. This is over in the same place that we're talking about how these gentlemen are sitting having tea and food together after their battle and how civilized they are. And we're going to see that the Native Americans were no more or less civilized than any other nation on the earth. They just had different ways. This wasn't a cultural thing. This is a human condition. Now, I wanted to bring this all home because you guys may be asking yourself, well, what does this all have to do with the Iroquois? You guys haven't really mentioned them much. It seems like that they're just sitting on the sidelines here. And yeah, that mainly is the case. But if there was a huge, massive global war happening, and it's happening right in your backyard, Ticonderoga, Oswego, these are Mohawk Oneida territory areas. It really does concern them. And they're sitting on the sidelines, but it doesn't mean they're not talking amongst themselves. As we mentioned before, because of these French victories, the Seneca, the Cayuga, the Oneida are starting to drift towards the French side. And you may be thinking to yourself, well, how, if the Mohawks down in the Mohawk Valley are allied with William Johnson, and these are supposed to be six united nations, how is this confederacy holding together with people taking two different sides in a global war? It doesn't seem like it makes sense, but to them, they did stuff like this all the time. I like to give an analogy. If you had a nail, Caleb, and you had six rubber bands facing out in different directions. You could take that rubber band and you could stretch it pretty far, right? Yeah. Yeah. And when it gets too tight, you could let go and it's going to spring back to the middle. Well, you have six different nations and they have full autonomy. And they can go off and make peace and war with whoever they like. That being said, they still had these codes that they held in warfare that they were not going to attack each other. And we've seen many times that if they find themselves in a battle facing each other they'll kind of excuse themselves from directly coming into conflict with one another as much as possible. And so you could totally be fighting in a war on the French side or on the English side. You're just out there to try and get some trade goods and some plunder. And who really cares if French and British people die because, eh, they're not really looking out for our best interests. We need to look out for the Iroquois best interests. And it's up to each individual nation and town and warrior to decide what their best interests are. Throughout all of these battles, the Iroquois have it in their head that basically let them both weaken each other and that will help us stay more relevant and more powerful in our areas and we won't have to worry about people coming in and trying to steal our land as much. It's going to actually have somewhat of a separate effect because they weren't planning on thousands and thousands of more people being sent over in these armadas to fight in these wars. All the wars that they've seen for the last several hundred years have not escalated to the point that this one has. But the Iroquois again realize that as they keep duking it out, the British and the French both are sending a lot of presents and a lot of emissaries to them, begging them to come over to their side. And so if you're a beautiful woman and you've got two guys willing to take you out to a different place to eat every other day, might not 
just hang on to both guys and see how long these, uh, these relationships can last because who can one-up the other and treat me the best is who I'm going to stick with and go to senior prom with. So we hope that you join us next time for our next installment of the French and Indian War, and we're going to see a lot more dancing going on between the British, French, and Iroquois. Over the last several weeks and months, our listenership has just risen amazingly, and a lot of people have been asking us, Caleb, how can we support the show? And there are ways that you listeners can support us, but... If you recall, Andrew and I made it very clear when we started the show, we were never going to advertise and we were never going to ask you for a dime. And that's because Andrew and I don't do this show to make money. We do this show because this was something we were passionate about learning and we wanted to share with you all the things that we learned and kind of really round out everyone's knowledge on American history. But there is a way you can support us though, and that's by leaving us an iTunes review. And you don't even have to write much. Maybe just write uh, a quick sentence on how you enjoy the show and you've learned something. And just by writing us an iTunes review, that helps us stay bumped in the iTunes charts. And you may be thinking to yourselves, I don't use an iPhone. I don't even know what iTunes is. All right, we'll let you off the hook. But what you can do is go on Facebook, go on Twitter. When you see stuff that we post, share it. Tell your friends, annoy them to death. Be like, do you know about the Iroquois Confederacy and how they influenced modern American politics and our way of life? And they'll just look at you weird. And you'll be like, you got to try it, man. You, you got to try it. Once you get hooked on it, there's just nothing like it. If you guys aren't willing to leave a review for us and you're not willing to leave one for yourselves, at least leave one so that you can join the Wild Sweet Potato Clan. It is the most popular Native American website pseudo-clan out there in the world today. And we currently have... I think 52 members. Uh, so you want to be early on the sweet potato uh, family tree. Yeah, especially if you want, once we branch out, to be a clan mother in your own town or a uh, pine tree chief or something like that. So get in while it's good. We mentioned also, we have Facebook, we have Twitter. You can find us on Twitter. Our handle is at Iroquois History. We also have a website with a ton of information at longhousepodcast.com. Yeah, don't forget to go there, guys, uh, because we do post maps for basically every episode showing the battles and the forts and things like that, so you can really get a good idea, especially if you don't live in New York or uh, or, or even if Canada. you do live in New York. Yeah, it really helps you understand where these forces are moving and the way that this war is going. You can also email us at longhousepodcast at gmail.com. Or you can send us a message on Twitter or Facebook also. We try to respond to everything. So we will see you guys in two weeks with French and Indian War Part 5.